The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We've been working our way through the passage by passage through the book of Genesis. And today, the next passage we come to is Genesis 11.10 through 12.9. So I'll be reading a selection of verses from this passage. And it says, Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, and she had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his, son's Abram, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make you your name great, so that you will be a blessing." I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place that Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent. With Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed still going toward the Negev. May God bless the reading of his word. Rick, let's pray this morning. Father, we're taught that the heavens and earth will pass away, but that your words will never pass away. They are eternally true, eternally relevant, and eternally powerful. And so help us to see the truth of this text and understand its relevance and experience its power. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in just a few days, uh, we will, of course, be celebrating the humble birth of our mighty Savior, Jesus, on a day that we have come to know as Christmas. And yet, I don't believe we can truly appreciate uh, the full significance of Christmas without having at least a basic understanding of the backstory. Understanding the backstory makes all the difference in the world when it comes to being able to appreciate something. Uh, For example, a few years ago, I walked into a movie theater in order to see the latest Avengers movie at the time. I believe it was Avengers uh, Infinity War. But the problem is that I didn't really know most of the characters in the so-called Marvel Cinematic Universe. I had never seen uh, maybe just one or two Marvel movies prior to that. And so much of the characters that I was seeing were totally unknown to me in this movie. And so I certainly enjoyed the movie as a whole, but my enjoyment was a bit limited uh, simply because it felt like I was sort of coming into it halfway through the story. I didn't know most of the characters or their backstories, and therefore uh, wasn't able to appreciate this Avengers movie as much as I would have otherwise been able to. And I believe that's the way it is for Christmas as well. In order to fully appreciate the significance of Christmas, we have to understand the backstory. Because Christmas didn't happen in a historical vacuum, but rather was the culmination of thousands of years of promises God made and preparations he undertook to prepare the world for the coming of his son. And our main passage this morning is one of the most important parts of that backstory as we uh, seek to understand and, and to fully appreciate what happened on Christmas. Now, chapter 12 in Genesis is a major turning point in the book. Up until this point, things have been spiraling further and further downward. And so if it seems like we've been talking a lot about sin and judgment these past few months as we've journeyed through the first 11 chapters of the book, that's because we have. That's just what we find in those chapters. Uh, Just to review very briefly, after God created the world in Genesis 1 and 2, as a beautiful paradise for the first humans, Adam and Eve, things take a sharp turn for the worse in chapter 3. Adam and Eve rebel against God by eating the fruit he had commanded them not to eat and thereby plunge this entire world into a state of brokenness and dysfunction and sin. Among other things, people become alienated from God and also have a sinful nature and live out that sinful nature in a variety of ways. One of those ways recorded in the very next chapter is when Adam and Eve's son Cain becomes jealous of his brother Abel and meets him out in a field one day and murders him. So notice the downward spiral beginning to take shape there. 
Now we're no longer talking merely about eating some forbidden fruit. We're talking about first degree premeditated murder. We then see in chapter 5 that the curse of death God had pronounced on the human race is indeed a reality. Uh, Through this lengthy and detailed genealogy, we see that in generation after generation, everyone dies eventually. Then in chapter 6 through 10, we learn that evil has become so pervasive in the world that God has to wipe out the vast majority of the human race all at the same time through a worldwide flood. Only Noah and his family are saved and, and spared from that. And yet, even after this flood, we see in chapter 11 that people are still operating in a state of sinful rebellion against God. So, some of the worst external manifestations of sin have been addressed through the flood, but the human heart is still just as sinful as it's ever been. The flood treated the symptoms but not the disease itself. People continue in their rebellion against God and pridefully seek to exalt themselves by building the so-called Tower of Babel. So as you can see here, things have been spiraling downward for quite some time now, throughout chapters 3 through 11. But here in chapter 12, we encounter a dramatic turning point. It's in this chapter that God sets in motion a plan that will progressively unfold throughout the rest of the Bible. A plan to redeem his people from their sins. This is one of the key watershed moments in the entire Bible. Although we've seen a few faint glimmers of hope here and there throughout chapters 1 through 11, it's here in chapter 12 that God starts working in a very deliberate and purposeful way to rescue his people from their sins. Now, God's plan wouldn't be accomplished overnight. It would take thousands of years to unfold And in fact, is still unfolding to this very day. Yet it was all set in motion in Genesis 12. If you think of God's redemptive plan, kind of like a lengthy line of dominoes, Genesis 12 is like that very first domino being toppled. With many more dominoes to come throughout the rest of the Bible. Here in this chapter, the epic journey toward redemption has now officially begun. Now, the latter part of chapter 11 is another genealogy that gets us from Noah's son Shem all the way down to Abram's father, Terah, and subsequently to Abram himself. Uh, And by the way, Abram is the same guy who would later be called Abraham when God changes his name. But for the time being, he's just Abram. And we read about him in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. 
And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And in him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So in these verses, God reveals himself to Abram and calls him to leave everything that's familiar to him and promises to bless him in various ways. Now, understand that up until this point, Abram and his family were thoroughly pagan. They were residing in the city of Ur, which was the world's leading center for the worship of the moon, and specifically of the moon god Nana. We find confirmation that Abram was indeed an adherent of this pagan religion in a statement from Joshua 24.2. It says, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. They served other gods. So there's no doubt that Abram at this point was a pagan through and through. In fact, there's even evidence from some archaeological excavations of the city of Ur that the adherents of this lunar religion would sometimes even practice human sacrifice. So I'm not sure if Abram himself ever participated in any of those rituals, but that's the kind of religion that he was involved with, at the very least. And yet, it's out of that thick spiritual darkness that God calls Abram. And by the way, that is a great reminder for us that God can reach anyone. Wherever they are. You know, maybe you have a friend who, who seems totally uninterested in God. And, 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 and not interested at all in any spiritual conversation. Or, or maybe you have a child who's grown up now and who openly rejects everything that you once taught them about God. Well, it doesn't matter. No one is too far removed from God. For God to reveal himself to them. In addition, what we find in these verses is the first statement in the Bible of what's often called the Abrahamic covenant or God's covenant with Abraham. A covenant, by the way, is simply a sacred agreement. God makes an agreement with Abram, later Abraham, to bless him in various ways. So let's look at the various elements of this covenant. First, God says, I will make of you a great nation. Now this is particularly amazing since we were told in the previous chapter that Abram's wife Sarai was barren. Yet nevertheless, God says that Abram will be the father, not just of one or two children, but eventually of an entire nation. God then says, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Now, we were told in the previous chapter, again, that in their prideful rebellion, the builders of the Tower of Babel were seeking to do what? To make a name for themselves. Saw that last Sunday. 
And yet here, God says that that's exactly what he's going to do for Abram. However, God also makes it clear that Abram won't just be blessed himself, but will be a conduit of blessing to others. By the way, if God has blessed you in your life, he hasn't done that just for you. He's blessed you so you can be a conduit of blessing to other people. And God then tells Abram, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. So Abram will be so blessed that even those who bless him will get some of the overflow of that blessing. Though the opposite will be true for those who dishonor him. In fact, notice the severe punishment for those who dishonor Abram. Uh, God doesn't say that he'll merely dishonor those who dishonor Abram, right? as we would expect. right? That would be the parallel. No, God goes a step beyond that and says he'll actually curse them. That's how fiercely devoted God says he's going to be to Abram. And then lastly, God says to Abram that in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that, as we'll see, is the most significant blessing of them all. But first, I, I know I just said that was the last promise, but there's actually one additional promise later on in the passage. If you look down in verse 7, uh, I guess you could think of it as sort of a, I don't know, a bonus promise, uh, almost like an infomotion, right? But wait, there's more. Um, God says to Abram, to your offspring, I will give this land. I'm talking about the land of Canaan. It's the same land that the people of Israel, several hundred years later, would eventually conquer and then occupy. So that's why it's called, maybe you've heard this before, the promised land. Because it's the land God promises to Abram here in Genesis 12, 7. Now, all of these promises that we've discussed would later be reiterated and some of them even slightly expanded numerous times in Abram's life, as we'll see in our journey through Genesis over these next few months. But the basic elements of God's covenant with Abram are present right here in Genesis 12. Yet returning to what I believe is the most significant part of the Abrahamic covenant in verse 3, we see that this covenant isn't just about Abram being blessed, but about the whole world being blessed. God makes a covenant with Abram to bring immeasurable blessing, not only to Abram himself, but to the whole world. And that's the main idea of this passage, in case you're taking notes. God makes a covenant with Abram to bring immeasurable blessing, not only to Abram himself, but to the whole world. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed, God says. Now, how do you think that will be fulfilled? How would God do that? Well, Abram would have a child named Isaac, and Isaac would have a child named Jacob, who is also named Israel. Israel would then have 12 sons, who would eventually become the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel that we find stories about throughout the rest of the Old Testament. 
Yet the nation of Israel never really was a vehicle for worldwide blessing. Instead, they openly despised those who were outside of their nation. And even if they had wanted to be a blessing to all the families of the earth, they weren't really ever in a position to do that since they themselves were usually so far from God. And so how would God's promise to Abram of worldwide blessing be fulfilled then? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because it's at this point that we come to a lowly manger in the tiny town of Bethlehem. Where the long-awaited Messiah named Jesus would make his entrance into this world on the day that we now celebrate as Christmas. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one through whom God's promise to Abram all those years before would ultimately be fulfilled. He's the one who would be the source of immeasurable blessing to all the families of the earth. So understand here that, that God sending Jesus to be born at Bethlehem wasn't just this like random thing that he decided to do one day. Rather, it was the fulfillment of many promises in the Old Testament, and specifically this promise made to Abram. The Apostle Paul spells out the connection for us in Galatians 3, 13 and 14. He writes that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in, here it is, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised Spirit, the Holy Spirit through faith. So according to verse 14, how does the blessing of Abram or Abraham come to the Gentiles? Well, Gentiles, by the way, are simply people who aren't Jews. So how does the blessing of Abraham reach beyond Abraham's biological descendants and impact the whole world? In Christ Jesus. Paul says, it's in Christ Jesus that the blessing of Abraham comes to the Gentiles. God promised Abram in our main passage that in him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And now we see Paul teaching very clearly that Jesus is, uh, we might say, the distribution mechanism for that blessing. And Jesus accomplished this, Paul says in Galatians 3.13, by becoming a curse for us in his death on the cross. You see, our sins had earned God's curse. Paul refers to it here as the curse of the law. God's punishment on us for being lawbreakers. Yet we read here how Jesus redeemed us from that curse by becoming a curse for us. In his death on the cross, Jesus endured. He took on himself the punishment that we deserved. He took the law's curse so that we could receive Abraham's blessing. 
He took God's wrath so that we could receive God's mercy. He took the punishment so we could receive the pardon. You know, uh, when an elected official in our country, such as a president or governor, pardons an individual, that elected uh, official, as I understand it, issues their pardon mainly by signing the appropriate documents. Uh, There's no direct cost or consequence that the elected official has to suffer in order to pardon someone. That's not the way it works when it comes to the sins that we've committed against God. Instead, the only way Jesus could secure our pardon was by taking our punishment on himself. He didn't just sign a piece of paper at some luxurious mahogany desk in a a finely furnished office. Instead, he actually took our place on death row. He took the curse so we could receive the blessing. And friends, that's the only way anybody can become right with God. Sinful people are only able to be reconciled to a holy God in and through Jesus Christ. On the basis of his sacrificial death and also, of course, on his victorious resurrection from the dead three days later. So the most important thing that any of us can do in our lives is to turn from our sins and put our trust in Jesus alone for rescue. And the Bible says that those who do that become, in a spiritual sense, children of Abraham. If you remember, God had promised Abraham way back in Genesis 12 too, to make of him a great nation. And at first, it might be tempting to think of that great nation simply as the nation of Israel. That was, of course, biologically descended from Abraham. Yet in reality, that's just the beginning of what the great nation would be that God would make from Abraham. Ultimately, that great nation consists of all who put their faith in Jesus. Paul explains in Romans 11 how even those who have no biological connection to Abram can be grafted into the vine, as, it, as he puts it there, and so become a part of Abram's family and a recipient of God's blessings. And then, to top it all off, we find a description of the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to Abram in Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, that is to Jesus. What a beautiful picture of 
those for whom Jesus died, worshiping him face to face for all eternity. And here's what's really cool about that. You guys ready for this? You see that word tribes there in verse 9, where it talks about all tribes and peoples and languages? That Greek word translated as tribes, uh, phule, is the same word used in the Greek version of the Old Testament to translate the word families in Genesis 12.3. And so in Genesis 12.3, God promised Abraham that through him all the phule of the earth would be blessed. And then in Revelation 7, 9, we read about people from every phule gathering around Jesus and worshiping him for his saving grace. So all the families of the earth, all the phule of the earth would indeed be blessed and blessed for all eternity in and through Jesus. And so as you can see, God's redemptive plan stretches throughout the Bible. It's first set in motion in the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 12 and then finds its final culmination in the book of Revelation. So hopefully you can see now what a big deal Genesis 12 is in the overall story of the Bible. It's like the fountain out of which all subsequent blessings flow. Also notice in all of this how God's the one who takes the initiative. In this grand story of rescue and redemption that stretches from Genesis to Revelation, God is the main character. He's the hero of the story. And we can see that even at the very beginning in Genesis 12. Don't forget that Abram was a pagan moon worshiper who likely had no knowledge of the one true God and had done nothing to make himself deserving of God's favor. And yet, God graciously took the initiative and revealed himself to Abram. He then made the stunning promises to Abram that we read in verses 2 and 3. And notice that these verses aren't about anything that Abram needs to do for God, but rather about what God promises to do for Abram. And we can see that simply by taking a quick survey of all the times the phrase, I will, appears in these verses. And God says, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse. And then later on in the passage, he says to your offspring, I will give this land. So here's what we need to know about God's plan for rescue and redemption. It consists of God, 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 God. The gospel is a message of a great God showing incredible mercy to unworthy sinners. That's what it was in Genesis 12 with God's promises to Abram, and that's what it is today. Friends, we need to understand that the gospel isn't a message about us reaching up to God 
through religious rituals or trying to be a good person. Rather, it's a message of God in his mercy reaching down to us. It's not about us achieving anything, but rather about us receiving the grace God offers. So stop trying to work your way up to God and instead embrace the grace he offers you as the free gift that it is. However, part of receiving that gift is renouncing everything in our lives that's contrary to God's will. Make no mistake, God calls us out of our sin, just as he calls Abel, out of the pagan city of Ur, and away from everything that was familiar to him. Again, Genesis 12, 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. We then read in verses 4 and 5 about how Abram followed God's call. It says, so Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. We then read in verses 8 and 9, from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. So think about what a monumental act of faith that was for Abram. We have every indication that Abram had a very comfortable life there in the city of Ur. He had lived there for a long time and was quite settled there. He was surrounded by his family and the support he could expect from them. And he was quite prosperous. Not only that, the only thing Abram had to go on for this major life decision was what God tells him in the first three verses. And God doesn't even give Abram all the details about where he's supposed to go. You know, imagine that, that God just said to you one day, hey, I want you to put all your stuff in a moving truck, and I want you to leave your home here in Pittsburgh, leave your job, leave everything that's familiar to you, and I want you to start going uh, that way <laughs> to the land I'll show you. I mean, that's essentially what God says to Abram, meaning that Abram had to trust God even more than he would have otherwise had to. For all practical purposes, Abram might as well have been like blindfolded as he went where God told him to go. Um, I remember one time when I was in college, some of my friends uh, blindfolded me uh, on my birthday one time and uh, kidnapped me and uh, took me to a restaurant where they finally took the blindfold off. But during that journey, I just had to trust my friends that they were taking me to someplace good and, you know, not just dropping me off in the middle of nowhere or something like that, right? Uh, I had to uh, in order to go along with the, the kidnapping, I had to exercise faith in them in that way. 
And uh, yet, of course, the faith required of Abram was even greater than that, much greater. God was calling Abram to risk it all in obedience to his command. And as we see, Abram did as the Lord told him. Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 10 tells us, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So make sure you understand the relationship here between faith and obedience. Abram's outward obedience was simply the manifestation of his inward faith. He wasn't earning or achieving anything, but simply exhibiting his trust in God. And it's no different for us today. Faith and obedience are inseparable. We should never imagine that we have faith in Jesus if we're not stepping out in obedience to him. And when Jesus calls us to follow him, it's a lot like God's call to Abram. Jesus doesn't make any specific guarantees about what our futures will be like on this earth. Now, he promises us eternal life, that city with foundations that Abram was looking forward to. But he doesn't promise, for example, that if we become a Christian, then all of our problems in life will magically be fixed. Or that we'll have a life of comfort and ease. Jesus actually doesn't give us any specific details about how our lives will turn out, but simply the promise that whatever happens, he will be with us every step of the way. He then calls us to venture out in faith with our total trust and confidence in him to take care of us. That's what's involved. In becoming a Christian, you have to be willing to leave your life of sin and put your life in God's hands, surrendering it all to him. Nothing short of that qualifies as true saving faith. Also, for those of us who have already put our trust in Jesus in this way and been rescued from our sin and become Christians, I believe there are also a few questions that God's call to Abram here in Genesis 12 should lead us to ask of our lives. What is God presently calling you to do in your life? Where is he calling you to go? How is he calling you to get out of your comfort zone? For example, I appreciate one lady in our church who was willing to step out in faith a few weeks ago by agreeing to host a community group next semester in her home, even though she had never done that sort of thing before. And she told me that it was a significant 
step of faith for her. Praise God for that. So what about you? How is God calling you to step out of your comfort zone in faith-driven obedience to him? Maybe he's calling you to publicly profess your faith through baptism, even though that might offend certain family members. Or maybe he's calling you to have a difficult conversation with someone, perhaps to warn them about a troublesome path they seem to be headed down, or perhaps to resolve some sort of tension in your relationship. Or maybe he's calling you to have a gospel conversation with somebody in your life and tell them about Jesus, even though you're not sure how they'll respond. Or maybe God's calling you to broaden your horizons on Sunday morning here at church and to, instead of just talking to people that you already know at church, to make it a habit to step out of your comfort zone and introduce yourself to people you don't recognize and who are most likely guests and to help them feel loved and welcomed. Or, for those who count themselves to be part of this church, maybe God's calling you to step out in faith in the area of generosity and start contributing according to the biblical pattern of a tithe or a tenth of your income. I know from personal experience, uh, during certain seasons in my life in particular, it, maintaining that level of generosity takes a significant amount of trust in God to provide for our own needs. Or maybe God's calling you, as he did Abram, to literally go out to another land as a cross-cultural missionary in order to spread the gospel throughout the furthest corners of this world. So there are plenty of ways in which God calls us as Christians to step out in faith, just as he called Abram to do in Genesis 12, with our total trust and confidence in him. 